Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an appeal to Western academic and cultural institutions to sever their ties with Putin's oligarchs, whose money has bought influence in an alarming number of academic institutions and think tanks, many working on U.S.-Russia relations. Joining us is Olev Kotuba, the manager of publications of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in authoritarian contexts, focusing primarily on the 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian and East European literatures and cultures. He is the signatory of an open letter to Ant AC News, Ban Kremlin Agents and Toxic Russian Propaganda. Then we'll look into how the leaders of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, MBZ and MBS, have refused to take calls from President Biden. And in the case of MBZ, the Emiratis abstained in the UN General Assembly vote condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and they abstained on a UN Security Council vote condemning Russia in exchange for Russia's vote to designate Yemen's Houthis as a terrorist group. Joining us to look into what 50 years' worth of U.S. support for these Gulf princes and potentates has gotten us is Sarah Lee Whitson, Executive Director of Democracy in the Arab World, now Dawn. She was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries and led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. Then finally, we'll assess whether Trump has yet again skirted the law and remained one step ahead of the sheriff, which has been the story of his business and political careers so far. Joining us to discuss the new Manhattan DA's decision to drop their cases against Trump and the Trump Organization is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and advocate who's writing focuses on white-collar crime and follow-the-money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. And her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And before we go to our first guest... Since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Olaf Kotuba, who is the manager of publications of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in authoritarian context, focusing primarily on the 20th century and contemporary Russia, Ukraine, and East European literatures and cultures. And he's a signature to 
an open letter at Ant AC News, ban Kremlin agents and toxic Russian propaganda. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olaf Katuba. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the petition, the appeal to Western academic and cultural institutions to stop taking Russian money from Putin's oligarchs and also uh, to rename many of their institutions. The list is extraordinary. I mean, it, it includes Harvard University, Yale University, Council on Foreign Relations, the New York Academy of Sciences, Tel Aviv University, Columbia University, Cannon yeah. Institute, the Wilson Center, and the Center for National Interest at the Carmel Institute of Russian Culture and History at American University, Cambridge University, Oxford University, Tel Aviv University, John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, Carnegie Hall. This is extraordinary when you think of the extent to which Putin's oligarchs have done their reputation washing through donations to charities yeah. and to museums. But yeah. when you think about these think tanks that I just listed, they shape U.S. foreign policy, do they not? And this yes. is where Putin is really getting a bang for his buck, right? That's right. And we have to remember that these people, they're not just any oligarchs. You know, the, the general idea of an oligarch is that it's someone who is involved both in business and in politics, who has impact, influence, and so on, and who can perhaps at times undermine or challenge the, the political uh, power. These kind of guys are all really pocket oligarchs. They're Kremlin oligarchs that have been created to a large extent by Putin himself. Why? Because it's so very convenient for him to have these people, you know, stash his money and do whatever he tells them to do. They all know that he can undo them or even annihilate them the moment that he desires to do so. And so they really do his bidding. And so just at Harvard, for example, where I am, uh, there is a Blavatnik Institute at Harvard Medical School. There is a Blavatnik Fellowship in Life Sciences at Harvard Business School. There is a Blavatnik Biomedical Accelerator and a Blavatnik Therapeutical Challenge Awards, all of them founded by Len Blavatnik, who is a Kremlin-allied oligarch. You know, and at one of the ceremonies here a few years ago when uh, his foundation donated $200 million to Harvard for these initiatives, the president of Harvard has praised him as a philanthropist and, uh, and praised this particular donation as an act of uh, unparalleled generosity, uh, without mentioning that this is the guy who is engaged closely in all the subversive activities of the Russian president and of the Kremlin in, you know, really attacking the Western societies, in attacking Ukraine and attacking the media and the freedom of speech in, in Russia itself. Well, it is extraordinary when you look at the scope of the influence. It's quite damning. And what I find extraordinary is that it's taken this long for people to wake up to the, the modus operandi of Putin. Because remember when he went after the oligarch Hodorovsky, who was the richest man in Russia, uh, for his belief in democracy and wanting to to have pluralistic political parties. Yes. He was put in jail what, in the gulags for about 10 years and stripped of all of his assets and other of Putin's cronies ended up overnight billionaires. Yeah. But wasn't that a signal he was sending, basically, that I'm going to regulate the oligarchs and you have to step to my tune? And obviously, on top of that, of course, he uses them for cutouts to hide 
the approximate $160 billion he's stolen from the Russian people. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what happened. And certainly those oligarchs who didn't want to abide or, or decided you know, not to follow the lead, they were in, in one way or another eliminated. Just think of uh, Berezovsky, for example, who was found dead in his home in London. You know, so there there is a real threat that um, Putin has, you know, sent as a signal to all of these oligarchs and most of them obliged or uh, he has created these oligarchs from no one. I mean, there are people there that used to be his bodyguards or his cooks, you know, that kind of people. And so they really do his bidding. And how can we how can we afford you know, to provide these people with, um, you know, a seat at the table with decent leaders of our institutions. It's unacceptable, you know. So what kind of response are you getting then, even from your own um, institution, Harvard University? Well, you know, everyone is, uh, on the one hand, everyone is uh, offering words of support and, you know, condemning the uh, the Russian um, uh, you know, Russian aggression against Ukraine, the war and the killing of innocent civilians. But on the other hand, no one rushes really to distance themselves to the, from these initiatives or at least to, uh, you know, maybe not give back the money, but at least to remove these names from these uh, institutions, these programs that they have launched and perhaps turn some of the funding received towards supporting Ukraine and programs on Ukraine. Well, when I read your list, and and there's a lot more on the list, well, if I'm sort of taken aback because I actually talk to a lot of these Russian scholars and specialists at institutions like the Kennan Institute. Of course, Kennan Institute is named after the great American diplomat George yes. Kennan. So it's a little unsettling, frankly, for yep. me. Yes, and that's I mean that's exactly the um, the danger here. These individuals are spreading corruption throughout institutions that are meant to support us in our decision making here. And so if these people get a seat at the table and they're listened to and other people are not listened to, right, speak Ukrainians or someone else, you know, then there is definitely a certain preference that they are receiving in exchange for donating to these institutions, you know, and of course, in, in many cases, the causes themselves are just or or they are worthy of support. But the real question is, at what price? You know, for example, the Columbia University program, you know, the Columbia University Press publishes translations of Russian literature. It seems completely benign, right, on the outside. But when you look deeper into who is funding that initiative, then you realize that, you know, a co-founder of the institution that finances that translation program is Russia Today. It's a propaganda outlet in Russia. And the head of the supervisory board of that of that uh, entity that finances this this translation program is the is the deputy director of Russian basically censorship office that has, you know, expelled journalists, has initiated sanctions against innocent bloggers for simply writing about corruption in Russia or, or pointing things out about the war in Ukraine. The same with the think tanks such as the Canon Institute. This cannot, you know, be the, the kind of the business as usual anymore. And it's time really to wake up and to examine the, the influences that these institutions are experiencing. 
And again, I'm speaking with Olaf Katuba, who is the manager of publications of the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in authoritarian context, focusing primarily on 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian and East European literatures and cultures. And he's a signatory of an open letter at Ant AC News, Ban Kremlin Agents and Toxic Russian Propaganda. So along with these American academic institutes and your appeal to Western academic and cultural institutions to look at the money that's come in from Putin's oligarchs and at least, at the very least, start renaming your buildings and institutes, but you also include a list of these Russian think tanks or propaganda outfits that have been spread around the world, like the Ruskimir Russia World Foundation, uh, the Gorchikov Fund, the Dialogue of Civilizations Institute in Berlin, and the Institute for Democracy and Cooperation in Paris. By the way, the Institute for Democracy and Cooperation in Paris, they hosted Donald Trump Jr. back in uh, 2016, uh, where they paid him $50,000 and fed him a bunch of propaganda about the Syrian war. And lo and behold, uh, that got to his father and Donald Trump of course, pulled the U.S. out of the U.S. troops out of northern Syria, and that resulted in the slaughter of the Kurds. So yes. you can see the direct connection there, surely. That's right. And the kind of the real the real issue at stake here is that they have created this shell uh, societies or shell organizations throughout the world, uh, behind which some of the most corrupt people, uh, you know, of our time are hiding. And of course, what kind of uh, uh, you know uh, what kind of uh, ideas and what kind of initiatives are these corrupt people are going to advance? It's certainly not going to be anything that is for the betterment of humanity or you know for some kind of uh, um, you know peace uh, negotiations in the world or in kind of in the difficult in the difficult parts of the world. So we have seen this, you know, and. Uh, this uh, organizations such as the Gorchakov Fund or this uh, Ruski Mir Foundation, or for that matter, Valdai Discussion Club, which is basically Putin's own club for the kind of the rich, the powerful and the influential of the world. They have all basically been corrupting our elites by inviting them, by, you know, dining them, by, you know, giving them all kind of extra perks for participating in, the, in these institutions and behind the scenes what they have been working then using those people as you know as a, a tool to legitimize themselves they've been trying to put forward this malign influences and this uh, you know plans that are undermining our democratic societies and obviously the west how can we how can we respect ourselves if we are just accepting such such a such an activity directed against us from from this uh, you know group of Russian uh, oligarchs uh, uh, created by Putin. Well, in many ways, it's worse than that in terms of the infiltration into, particularly into the Justice Department. There's this wealth protection industry of these lawyers from these big white shoe law firms like Jones Day and others that handle the money of Deripaska and all these other Putin's uh, oligarchs. You know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And they call them white boys in the trade. And they managed, through William Barr, the former attorney general in the Trump administration, to put a whole bunch of these guys that handle oligarchs' money 
into top positions in the Department of Justice. Little wonder Barr was able to neutralize the Mueller report and keep the ties between Trump and Putin secret. That's right. Yes, I, I don't think that we know the half of it, to be honest. I think this is just a start in the kind of in unraveling this entire, you know, um, uh, web of connections between various corrupt entities and individuals in Russia and in Western societies. But we need to start somewhere. Uh, you know, they have really targeted some of the best of our institutions in education, in uh, political, you know, consulting and so on, in you know, in finance, in order to undermine the societies from inside, from within. And so I think we need to, you know, have a hard look and uh, a, little, a little bit of soul searching in our societies and, um, you know, understand how these people, how these individuals, with the help of certain Western, uh, you know, connections, uh, are, you know, literally corrupting our societies and our, our you know, uh, primary institutions. So in the last few minutes, Olaf, let's talk about your colleagues and the other signatories of this open letter ban Kremlin agents and toxic Russian propaganda. What are you hearing from Ukraine in particular? Because it seems to me that yesterday's mm -hmm. testimony by the director of national intelligence and the head of the CIA, they're more or less saying it's, it's all over. The Ukrainians can't win. Putin eventually will, will prevail. And that's obviously the last thing that Zelensky wants to hear. And I was watching uh, Colonel Vindman on the on television last night making the case that the possibility still exists to arm the Ukrainians with more longer-range anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. And we know that Poland offered up a fleet of MiG-29s, which the U.S. refused to allow to be deployed, and Vindman is basically making the case that the Ukrainians could still hold off the Russians mm -hmm. uh, for for even for several more weeks, mm -hmm. and this would give them leverage in negotiations because we know yeah. that Peskov is basically saying to them, and we know this is what their negotiators are saying to their Ukrainian counterparts, look, you become a neutral country, recognize Crimea and the Donbass, and, and we'll stop killing you. That's you know that's the deal they're offering. Mm -hmm. So, what's your sense of what what are you hearing about mm -hmm. how the fatalism from American experts like the head of the CIA and the director of national intelligence doesn't really help Zelensky by suggesting that he's already lost the war? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just would like to remind uh, all the listeners who you know who are listening to this show today that. Uh, there was the American intelligence and the American, uh, um, you know, uh, specialist who had predicted that Ukraine is going to fall within days, and that didn't happen. Um, you know, in a in a famous interview or or an article from 2014, Ukraine was called um, the unexpected nation, and we have seen that uh, Ukrainians have done unexpected and often unbelievable things in deterring Russia. Uh, Russia is not interested in any part of Ukrainian territory. That's my belief. What uh, Russia is really interested in is in wiping off the face of Earth Ukraine as an idea. What is that idea? That idea is deeply anti-imperial and very, very democratic. Ukrainians have tradition of democracy going back 
you know, centuries uh, and the kind of the, the way that they self-ruled, the way that they elected the leaders and so on are just inherently democratic. That's something that Russia and, and President Putin in particular uh, is particularly scared of. Uh, the kind of the the rationale here is that if there is a democratic success, successful Ukraine right next to Russia, then that might have an impact on Putin's ability to hold together the kind of authoritarian system that he has built uh, in Russia. So what I hear from from Ukraine, from people inside, and I have my relatives and friends who are sitting in damp basements and have been sitting there for two weeks you know, listening to the bombardments and not leaving. You know, what I hear from them is that we are not going to give up no matter what. We have been waiting for centuries for a chance to beat back Russians for all the killings and all the all that they have done to us. People are extremely furious. They're enraged by what, by what Putin has done. They're willing to die before they will surrender. And even if the political government which I don't believe is going to happen. But even if the political government of Ukraine accepts some kind of a compromise that goes against that, people are not going to listen to that. People are still going to fight. And this is something that both American experts as well as international allies need to understand. This is not just some kind of you know coldly calculated case for Ukraine. We are fighting for our homes. We're fighting for our families and so on. That's what they're saying. So no one is leaving. You know, the men are not leaving. In fact, 140,000 men returned from abroad to assist in the uh, in the fighting. The uh, territorial defense units are no longer accepting volunteers because there are so many of them. So the kind of the enthusiasm and the ability to fight on the Ukrainian side is much, much higher than anyone has ever predicted. And this is precisely why it's so important to arm Ukrainians, to give them a fighting chance. The, uh, the air defense systems, despite the fact that Ukraine was the, really the cradle of a lot of uh, you know, airplane production, uh, missile production in the Soviet times, where all, most, of the, uh, most of the engineers and specialists were Ukrainian, you know, despite all of that, the aerial defenses are really the weak, the weak part of Ukrainian defense systems. And so we just need to give them the tools to fight this war. You know, and that's all they're asking for. They're not asking for the American boots on the ground or German boots for that matter or anyone else's. Give them the tools, you know, give them the Patriot missiles, give them the Iron Dome, give, give them the, you know, whatever airplanes you can. And they're, and, and you know, they have already shown that they're able to use these weapons, these tools very effectively, you know, really kind of using at times tactics that would multiply the effectiveness of these weapons, you know, uh, several times. Well, Olaf Katuba, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you, too. And again, I've been speaking with Olaf Katuba, who's the Manager of Publications of the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in an authoritarian context, focusing primarily on 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian and East European literatures and cultures. And he's a signatory of an open letter at AntAC News, Ban Kremlin Agents and Toxic Russian Propaganda. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the leaders of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, MBZ and MBS, have refused to take calls from President Biden. And what 50 years worth of U.S. support for these Gulf princes and potentates 
have gotten us. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, who is the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, and was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries, and she also led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. Thank you for having me. So obviously, President Biden is frantically trying to get other countries around the world to help him in his effort to ban the import of Russian oil, and the British have come along. Obviously, Germany and some of the European countries dependent upon Russian oil and gas or uh, haven't quite figured out what to do, to put it mildly. But he also, apparently, Biden's been reaching out to Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, along with Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dubai in the Emirates. And they're apparently refusing to take President Biden's calls, and they've also rejected his offer or need to visit these countries and perhaps, you know, presumably break the impasse in, since he's been kind of boycotting Saudi Arabia, at least uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So obviously they're going to make a ton of money on the rising price of oil, which is disgusting, of course. But what do you think is happening here? The Emiratis in the UN General Assembly vote, they abstained. So why are we supporting these people with 50 years of security assistance when, uh, at a moment when the U.S. needs them, that basically snubbing us? Um, well, I think that's a, a very good question, Ian. And I think there's a moment of truth. It's a very clarifying moment uh, in America's relationship with these abusive governments uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, where the invasion of Ukraine uh, has really sharpened into focus not only uh, the cost of America's support for these governments, America's relationships with these governments, in terms of undermining the very international laws and norms that the United States is now clinging to, to rally support uh, for, uh, the, uh, for, for against Russia, for uh, supporting the war, uh, supporting the people in Ukraine, um, but also is not even delivering the supposed benefits that these relationships are supposed to give us. Um, so uh, Biden has persuaded uh, us and, and prior administrations have persuaded us to hold our noses uh, to allow and, and uh, pursue relationships with autocratic, abusive, unelected emirs and, and princes and kings um, because of the supposed benefits that it would give us. And now we see them snubbing their noses at even delivering a modicum of support, a modicum of reciprocation of what the United States has been providing these countries for years. Uh, forget about sanctioning Ukraine. 
they have grudgingly uh, even come along to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the UAE refused to support a Security Council resolution uh, to condemn uh, the invasion of Ukraine and refused to co-sponsor uh, the resolution in the General Assembly. So what we're seeing is that these governments are in such a mercantile transactional mode that from their perspective, they can pick up and dump the relationship with the United States uh, uh, on a day-to-day consideration basis. Well, the vote in the General Assembly that you mentioned, uh, Sarah Whitson, apparently the UAE cut a deal with the Russians because on February 28th, Russia joined the UAE on the UN Security Council voting to designate Yemen's Houthi rebels a terrorist group. And apparently that looks like the deal, right? That they would abstain from voting against Russia on Ukraine uh, in exchange for their vote on Yemen. Uh, that is what has been reported. I think the full details are yet to emerge about exactly what kind of a deal um, uh, the UAE and and Russia have made. Um, but of course, it goes well beyond that. Uh, it goes to right now the United States urging uh, 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 Saudi Arabia to uh, pump more oil uh, to rally uh, uh, the, the, the uh, to rally support for and not allow the support for the war against Ukraine to diminish due to rising oil prices, and the Saudis are refusing uh, to to budge on that. And and the way in which they're refusing is they are demanding that Biden pay pay more. They want Biden to support the war in Yemen more, not less. They also want Biden, and this I find particularly you know, disturbing, they want Biden to intervene in the judicial process in America to block lawsuits against Mohammed bin Salman, civil suits against Mohammed bin Salman personally for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for the attempted murder of Saad Jabri, uh, for the attack and harassment of uh, uh, journalist Rada Weiss, uh, in order to agree to pump more oil. I mean, it's crazy that Mohammed bin Salman is putting a global issue of global importance to people all around the world and holding it hostage to private citizen lawsuits against him in the United States. Well, that leads you to despair at the nature of our world when you've got one man, Vladimir Putin, threatening the entire world with nuclear weapons. And you've got these people like MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, obviously has the power to do what he's doing, stiffing the United States and making a fortune out of the rising price of oil and doing it all because he wants these lawsuits dropped against him, even though he's manifestly guilty, at least according to the CIA. I, I mean, this is what I mean about it being a moment of clarity. Uh, I think that uh, most Americans uh, and many, many people in the world understand now at this moment of what's happening in Ukraine, just how important international law is, just how important, how much we need it, not only to protect and secure some faraway people in faraway lands, we need to uphold international law. We need to uh, uh, bolster uh, the rules that say you can't invade another country, you can't occupy another country, you can't change borders by force, you have to respect the sovereignty of a state. We need those laws to protect people in Europe from Russia right now. 
And by undermining those norms, we are in a situation where Putin is basically turning around, looking at the United States, looking at America's support for Israel, looking at America's support for Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE and what they're doing in Yemen and saying, you want us to follow the rules? You want us to follow international law? The true cost of America's denigration, of America's destruction of international law norms uh, in the Middle East are really coming home to roost now because we see the cost to the security of all people around the world at this moment in time, particularly in Europe. And again, I'm speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, and she was formerly the Executive Director for, of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries and led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. So given that the U.S. has supported the Emirates in particular, along with Saudi Arabia, for over 50 years, and now they're essentially, well, refusing to even take a phone call from President Biden, and along with that, Mohammed bin Salman and MBS and MBZ apparently don't want him to visit, unless he accepts their demands, which you've pointed out, dropping lawsuits and doubling down on support for the war in Yemen, which is obviously going nowhere, and the people in Yemen are suffering, according to the United Nations, some of the worst deprivations. Now, of course, our focus is on the suffering of the Ukrainian people, but the people in Yemen have been suffering for some time, and it's not getting the attention it deserves. So is there something going on here with the both the Emiratis, the Saudis, and the Israelis? Because the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett made a visit to Putin, and apparently the, Israel didn't really want to uh, condemn the Russian invasion, but they finally had to. So these are the triumvirate that came up with the so-called Abraham Accords. Are they trying to wait Biden out in the hope that Trump will come back in 2020? For because I'm sure well, Trump. I don't, and... Yeah, I, I, I don't. Um, I think you've you've put your finger on it on the very important realignment that has happened in the Middle East, with Israel allying with the autocratic states in the region, to create really a very very powerful axis throughout the Middle East, and perhaps the recognition that they don't really need the United States uh, for their protection, that their alliance will be sufficient to protect them and to allow them to dominate um, the region. So I think this is actually bigger than merely hedging their bets against Biden uh, and waiting for Trump. Uh, it may well be that Trump uh, will also be aligned with them. Uh, but I think it's a bigger strategic realignment uh, uh, where they're hedging their bets against the United States generally. Um, and the irony, of course, is that that alliance has been made possible by the United States, and that alliance has been paid for by U.S. taxpayers. It was the United States that paid uh, to lift the $300 million debt that Sudan owed the American people. Uh, in order to persuade them, to push them 
uh, to sign the Abraham Accords. It is the United States that had to recognize Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara to recognize it as Moroccan territory in return for Morocco normalizing. Uh, it was the United States uh, that had to persuade other states to go along with this by offering them a support like the weapons that were sold to the UAE in a way that the United States knows is destabilizing for the region, um, but has done it anyway to woo them into signing the Abraham Accords. Irony, they wanted to do this all along. They didn't need American bribes to do it. And yet America literally paid for this. Well, America under Trump, though. Well, America under Trump, but the Biden administration, if there's one straight line, one consistent, strong, supportive line between the Biden administration and the Trump administration, it's their support for the Abraham Accords. It's their continued effort to cajole and curry favor and nudge and push more Arab states to sign more Abraham Accords um, with Israel. Um, that is what is still what they have said openly and publicly and repeatedly, their priority. Well, we know that Jared Kushner visited Saudi Arabia recently before Mohammed bin Salman made it clear that he wasn't interested in lowering the price of gas to help out the American people and Biden in particular, which is the Saudis have done for previous American presidents. So what do we know about Kushner and Trump's meddling in that arena. And I mentioned the possibility that they may be wa waiting for him to come back in 2024. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop with Trump starting to meddle in the, the situation in Ukraine. It's not out of the question that he might try and make some sort of deal with his friend Putin at the expense of the Ukrainians. I mean, he's a loose cannon to say the least. He is a loose cannon, and it's uh, been, uh, uh, you know, shocking as usual to hear the stuff that's coming out of his mouth currently about the situation in Ukraine. But it is interesting um, that the Republican Party writ large, including those who've been strong supporters of Trump, uh, have moved away from their criticism and attacks on Ukraine uh, uh, in the defense of Russia and have now taken a much stronger uh, Ukraine line. In fact, they are among some of them are among the stalwarts calling for a no-fly zone, calling for greater support, greater arms uh, transfers to the Ukrainians, etc. Um, in terms of Kushner's visit, uh, most recent visit to Saudi and the Gulf, uh, what I found surprising was that apparently he was not able to drum up the cash uh, that he was expecting for his new investment company or investment venture, uh, and um, that the uh, anticipated payback uh, didn't quite deliver uh, at, at the levels that he had anticipated. So I think there's more going on there. I mean, some are just saying, well, that's just because they don't want to flush their money down the toilet. They don't, you know, they may believe in his. Uh, diplomatic uh, and political uh, capacities, but they're not quite convinced about his financial skills and capacities, uh, given his failed record prior to um, uh, joining the White House under Trump. Um, but I think there's there's more twists and turns to, uh, to emerge from that sordid relationship. So your organization is trying to bring democracy to this part of the world. And clearly, the Ukrainians are fighting for democracy, and frankly and ironically here in the United States, we're letting democracy slip through our fingers. What's your sense of whether there's any way to get 
domestic pressure against MZZ and MBS, or are they just such powerful autocrats? And they have obviously have, you know, the muta where they have these, you know, pretty brutal police state systems. Is there any hope there? I mean, we're kind of hoping. And I'm not sure that the U.S. government is doing much about it, but we're kind of hoping that the Russian people will eventually learn about what's really happening in Ukraine because they're getting fed a pack of lies. Are we to hope that something can happen inside the countries of Emirates and uh, Saudi Arabia? Well, I mean, first of all, let me just uh, uh, express my support for the Russian people and the 13,000 Russians who have been arrested uh, in protest against the war in Ukraine. That is courage. That is bravery. Um, they have taken a stand uh, at very, very high cost to themselves. You know, it's easy for us sitting here in America to say we oppose the war in Ukraine. Not so easy to say if you're a Russian. So, tip of the hat to the, the brave people in Russia who are resisting this. Uh, in terms of the Middle East and in terms of the autocrats uh, uh, and, and apartheid governments that rule uh, the Middle East and, and quash the populations uh, uh, beneath them, um, and in terms of Dawn and Dawn's work and strategy, I would say we are very strategically, perhaps humbly and narrowly focused on a much narrower goal. We we don't think we are going to persuade uh, uh, the, the sadistic uh, sociopath in Riyadh uh, to democratize uh, and, and respect the rights of his people, nor do we think uh, power-hungry uh, uh, neighbor MBZ uh, is going to do any better uh, or has any incentive to. What we're focused on doing is where our moral responsibility lies and where we think we can have an impact, uh, and that is to end our own government's support uh, to these governments, our own government's contribution to these human rights abuses, because the reality is that our government, the United States government, U.S. taxpayers are propping up these unelected, unaccountable apartheid governments. It is America's political and military support for Saudi Arabia, and if you don't believe me, take Trump's word for it, that has saved MBS's ass and continues to save his ass and enable his war in Yemen. Same goes for the UAE. It is American troops on the ground in the UAE that is helping fire Patriot missiles against incoming Houthi uh, uh, missile attacks. Uh, it is American troops who are taking their lives at risk to defend these emirs and sheikhs. Uh, and, you know, I need go no further to explain the significance not only of America's military support to Israel, which exceeds the support we give to any other country in the planet, um, but political support represented by most recently four, four blocked Security Council ceasefire resolutions during the conflict in May. Um, that is what we can do. That is what we should be doing. We can't fix everything that's wrong in the Middle East, uh, uh, nor are we the right people to do that. That has to come from the region. What we need to do is get America's fist off the scale in favor of the abusive, apartheid, unelected governments in the region. Well, Sarah Lee Woodson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Woodson, who is the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. 
and she was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries, and she led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. We can take a brief station break and back looking into whether Trump has yet again skirted the law and remained one step ahead of the sheriff as the new Manhattan DA has apparently decided to drop their cases against Trump and the Trump Organization. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on white-collar crime and follow-the-money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. And her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub. It is so great to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Donald Trump has always been one step ahead of the sheriff. Uh, He was schooled (laughs) by Roy Cohn to be proactive and use the law as a weapon. And he's been very skillful at it. And he's also skillful at delaying and delaying and delaying cases. But it looks as if he's been handed a gift by the new district attorney in Manhattan who has dropped the case against him. And according to news reports, Donald Trump is very happy that the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, doesn't think there's enough evidence against him. Yeah, just to clarify, there has not yet been an official announcement that uh, Bragg has, has dropped the case. I mean, there's some noises coming out of his office that it continues. But it seems very doubtful in light of all the reporting um, that you're talking about, um, because that you know the the resignation um, of Kerry Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, who had been top prosecutors working on the case when from when Cy Vance was the DA, um, they resigned in frustration. Um, you know that stemmed from some meetings they had with Bragg, who just didn't see who, who expressed a reluctance to move forward. And, you know, Ian, I, I know you've read what I read and what we're finding out is there was a plan to present the case to the grand jury this spring, um, you know, probably right about now. And uh, they were going to ask for an indictment and Bragg said no. So to me, you know, he, it's, it's all but dead at this point um, with your lead prosecutors resigning and the grand jury, um, period ending, I think, in April. So what's going on with Bragg? Because as soon as he got in, apparently, he ignored Kerry Dunn and Mark Pomerantz. They kept trying to have meetings with him, and they got more and more frustrated to the point where they resigned. What is his motive? Do we know? You know, my, I I think it's hard to, to ascribe a motive to a person, um, but from what I understand, and you can correct me um, if I'm wrong, 
he doesn't have a background as a criminal prosecutor. He did work on some civil cases um, at the uh, New York Attorney General's office going up against the Trump Trump organization, um, including the, I'm sorry, going up against the Trump charity, which led to its dissolution. But having, you know, having not had some of that background um, bringing criminal cases, he may just be um, reluctant and what Jesse Isinger has used to refer to prosecutors without a lot of courage, he may just be chicken shit at this, at this point and afraid to go up against someone with a lot of money and a lot of power. I think he has, um, I think that the problem lies though in not just what his own personal courage is, um, or what the sort of strength and money um, Trump has, but in some aspects, not of the facts, but of the law in New York. Um, and it's, you know, the law in New York isn't as hospitable to bring the kind of, to, to, to prosecute what Trump's, Trump allegedly did in terms of inflating the value of his assets on paper when it suited him to, for example, get bank loans and decreasing them at other times. Um, so I, I would just say that at this point, we can't count on Bragg um, to follow the facts and the law where they lead. Um, and I can get into some of the nitty gritty on, on, on that. But at this point, you know, it's the ball's really, the ball's really in the court of someone like Mimi Roca, who's the DA in Westchester County. And quite honestly, the number one person who should be pursuing the facts that have been discovered here um, is not uh, sitting in Manhattan, but he's instead sitting right there in Washington, D.C., and that is Merrick Garland, because there are federal laws on the books that are designed for exactly what's going on here, for which I don't think it would be as difficult to um, prove the case um, in the end of the day. Well, you would think that by now the IRS would have stepped in. I mean, that New York Times investigation gave them the entire roadmap. And what Michael Cohen said in his testimony and what has subsequently been investigated is pretty clear that Trump inflated these assets to get bank loans and deflated them to avoid taxes. And, and Mark Pomerantz right. so, was an expert in that field, right? Yeah, but here's the tricky thing, right? Mark Pomerantz is an expert in, you know, the, in the federal, the federal RICO law, right? Um, the trouble is we've got this New York, I, I've looked into the actual statutes that they were considering using to charge um, Trump. And they had gotten down to this thing called, they're possibly going to use something called the falsification of business records claim against him. And there was also um Another statute that dealt with um, dealt with um, a, a, a scheme to defraud in the first degree. And the tricky thing is, you know, if you look at the laws on the books, there are multiple different complicated elements here. And I just don't want, without getting you into the detail, um, th that creates some of the problem. But, but, but the federal law, there's a federal bank fraud law, there's a federal wire fraud law. And those would be a lot easier. They don't have these extra elements. But regardless, the bottom line here, the, the, the big thing that's making him scared, which I think is also making Merrick Garland scared, is they're afraid that it'll be difficult to prove criminal intent. And the deal is, this is why the rich 
white, rich, and well-connected of this world, people like Trump often never get charged um, because prosecutors are afraid they won't be able to convince a jury that the person, the defendant um, in the case actually knew what was going on and also intended to, um, to defraud, you know, acted knowingly and willfully, which is sometimes the, the, sometimes the legal standard required. Here's what I think, though. I think that's cowardice because, as everyone should know and remember, you know, the Enron cases against Jeff Skilling, um, for example, and Kenneth Lay, uh, there, was a, there was a trial of them. And I write about this in the book, Big Dirty Money. The judge gave the jury an instruction that people often refer to as a willful blindness instruction. And that's um, that instruction that you can give to a jury informs the jury that um, if someone deliberately makes themselves blind to facts out there in the world, um, you can you can make some assumptions that they actually knew. Right. So that gets rid of if, you know, if Trump claims, well, I had no idea what was going in these, you know, these loan applications, getting to the intent to defraud, meaning intending to deceive people. I, you know, I think you got a lot of evidence. I mean, don't you remember, Ian, when he said, I don't, people accuse me of not paying my taxes. I consider that smart. I mean, you can show, you can show his intent to pay as little taxes as possible. Well, that's not unlawful, but you can show other instances. Furthermore, you don't even need his testimony. They've got Michael Cohen and they might not have Weisselberg. The reason why they don't have Weisselberg is because Trump is so rich, he'll pay the guy off later. But I think Michael Cohen would make an excellent witness. And I don't agree with the commentators who say simply because Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to various offenses, including some involving Trump, he would be an easy witness to impeach. I don't think so. This is the kind of guy Trump had around him. And Trump and, and Michael Cohen can say we are as thick as thieves. And, you know, here's here's the deal. And um, I think I think he'd be a credible witness. And, you know, in the, you know, the fail, and, I, and I'm concerned about the several articles, one in the New York Times and one opinion piece in CNN that suggested that he wouldn't be a good witness. I completely disagree. And I and I just don't know why um, there's no courage to bring this case. It just sets the example, like you said, you know, try, you know if I had to teach in my white collar crime pl- class how to get away with it, Trump would be the example. Because if you make enough money through cheating, which he has done over the years, and manage to settle all these cases civilly and keep a lot of your winnings and allegedly engage in tax fraud and then never put anything in writing, never say anything exactly as you mean it speaking code, you can probably get away with it if you're a rich white guy. And, you know, that's a really disappointing thing to say, but I'd be lying to my students if I didn't tell them that. Right. And of course, it's pretty subjective uh, when you talk about valuation. I mean, he, you know, Trump valued his own apartment in Trump Tower at over $100 million. Obviously, that's ridiculous, but <laughs> he is ridiculous. <laughs> and he says ridiculous things and he believes ridiculous things. So well, let me tell you about what he be- believing things. So there's this thing. One of, the, one of the genius aspects of what Trump does is that he's convinced people and people are very stupid um, to say, well, you know, he just is really optimistic and he just doesn't have a, his handle on reality. So therefore he cannot be held to the same standards any of us are held to in business dealings or criminal law. And I just want to point out to you that the law solved this years ago in, con- in, in the area of contract law. 
In contract enforcement, there's a common law principle about um, about saying um, about this this idea of meeting of the minds. There's there's this notion that you can't have an enforceable contract unless both parties intended to be bound. And one way you show an intention to be bound is by a, a valid offer and effective acceptance. Well, there are many cases where someone says, "Well, I was joking." In fact, there's a there's a there's a, a famous case involving a guy who ends up um, selling his farm um, while he's drinking whiskey at a bar, and he said, "Well, I didn't really mean it." And the court held him to it. You know, he said he wasn't incapacitated, and just because he was joking doesn't matter. When if someone says that they are joking you look at it as it's called the objective theory of contract formation. Objective meaning uh, uh, you look at what a reasonable person would interpret your words and your actions to mean. And, you know, I think that a reasonable person, here's where it gets tricky. A reasonable person knows that Trump is, you know, kind of an exaggerator, a puffer, but how much, right? So he's now figured out a way even though the, the law generally considers us that we should look at what people say and what they do and not what's hidden in their heart or mind, Trump has walked around as a, a showboat, flashy, lying, you know, person. And so people have learned to take what he says with a grain of salt. So this is the way he's going to wiggle out of all kinds of obligations. And it shouldn't be that way. He should be held to the same standards, what normal people, what their behavior is. Otherwise, he's never... You know, his promises don't have to be enforced and his lies are not punished. So just in the last minute, Jennifer Taub, you mentioned Merrick Garland. If the January 6th committee comes up with the goods, which they look like they have, uh, particularly in terms of conspiracy to fraud the United States and obstruct the official official proceedings charge, the Republicans are already gearing up to basically declare war if Trump is indicted in any way. And uh, they're going to go after... Biden, and they're going to go after Hunter Biden. And if Ron Johnson maintains his Senate seat, he'll become chairman of the Permanent Investigation Subcommittee of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. So you can imagine what that clown will do. So how do you see the future of uh, Merrick Garland being faced with the with the choice to indict a former president? We need someone like Vladimir Zelensky to be the Attorney General. That's what I think. Sometimes you just have to stand up to corruption and force of will and do the right thing. And I'm hoping that's who we have. What I will tell you is one thing we have seen in Merrick Garland is he is bringing um, he is bringing white collar crime cases, not just uh, Lisa Monaco, his deputy attorney general, but also he has given a speech about white collar crime enforcement in terms of public corruption. They just indicted, the, the Justice Department just indicted um, uh, Michael Madigan out of, um, out of Illinois, and he's a Democrat. So I'm hoping that, you know, that it's not just Democrat, Democratic politicians that have to follow the law. I'm hoping that we get, you know, he finds his inner Zelensky and does what's right um, in the face of tremendous threat of force, because that's what they're threatening. You know, they, they're threatening to use not not just to all out war when when the republicans talk about all out war there is a not so hidden message there that there could be violence because that's what their followers do when they don't like what is to come and i think people need to have courage 
not be chicken shit. And I really think Merrick Garland is going to step up to the plate and bring these cases. That's what I think. Well, Jennifer Taub, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on white-collar crime and follow-the-money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at Western New England University School of Law, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past I'm not